Hello, everybody. Pensez-vous aujourd'hui que sa condamnation à la libération a été une injustice Ah, oh, well, that's not something that, that an Englishman can pronounce on. It really isn't. It is. No. For this simple reason, that if one hasn't been through, as our people mercifully did not go through, the horrors of an occupation by a foreign power, you have no right to pronounce upon what a country does, which has been through all that. That was former British Prime Minister Anthony Eden speaking in the film The Sorrow and the Pity. We'll be hearing more about him later. Hello. Hello. Welcome to this episode. We are representatives from two pods. Podcasts. Humble Mumbles. And Never Forget Radio. And today we'll be hearing from the Humble Mumbles archive of poorly self-recorded, yet vital, interviews and radio recordings from Palestine. Yeah. And today, we're going to talk about the French resistance and Palestinian resistance. We'll be listening to multiple interviews with Palestinian activists from 2015. Which are not unlike the regular people that pan-European director, French, German, and Jewish, Marcel Ophuls interviewed in 1969. Most of them aren't famous, these human rights activists, but rather like the former fighters in the occupied town of Clermont-Front in the documentary subject of tonight's episode, The Sorrow... And the pity. France fell in 28 days, a victim of the Nazi Blitzkrieg. These are the faces today of leaders and followers, of brave men and cowards and men who did nothing. A French aristocrat who joined the Waffen-SS and fought on the Russian front. Another joined the resistance. A German occupation officer argues that the resistance fighters should have worn armbands. A brief aside about this trailer narrator. Americans love the German army. Which you can tell by the rapturous way the narrator talks. The tanks and bigness. The German advance, the phallic militarism. The gray uniforms, the lightning tanks, the high water map. The French fled Paris, jamming the roads, panicked by the swift German advance. The bigger and badder and more exciting they were, the better we are for having beaten them. Our relationship with idealized Nazis is what America is, superhero villains who make us who we are. Dealing with this hypermasculine trailer would take its own episode. But until then... The Sorrow and the Pity is a big canonical four-hour-long epic that is essentially, in my mind, about moral divinity and twisted loyalties. It examines French and German people's reactions and responses to being under occupation and being occupiers. Some French people collaborated with their oppressors. Some joined the resistance. Some German Nazis say relations were cordial. Some French people demur. Some French aristocrats prefer monarchism to republicanism. We learn a lot of things in this film, which analyzes a time period, the way people remember themselves in the past, and how they see themselves rosily versus what they actually did. We're going to be talking about amnesia and elision. Which violence is celebrated as liberatory, and which violence is condemned as terrorism? What can we learn about the present from the past? Also, we should make a statement here. 
that while this film is largely about collaboration between some French and German people for a variety of survivalist or ideological reasons, this episode is not about that. The sorrow and the pity is about a lot of things, and some of them are very relevant for our purposes, but not this part. So yeah, no one is accusing anyone of being collaborators with the Israeli army. Except the United States and all of us. Wait, it sounds like you're saying we're accusing us of being, of being collaborators with sense? the Israeli army, yeah. Okay. All of us aren't, aren't accusing Palestinians? <laughs> oh, oh no, no, no. We're, we're accusing all of us and you listeners of being part of the Israeli army. <laughs> okay, oh. all right. We're here to talk about resistance, however you call it. Guerrilla warfare, irregular operations, terrorism, podcasts. So, during World War II, Germany occupied France for four years and instituted a satellite suzerainty government, Vichy France, headed by former World War I hero turned paternalist dictator, Marshal Petain. After American, British, and Free French forces, headed by Charles de Gaulle, liberated France and defeated the Germans, few public voices explored the shared experience of the occupation and the subsequent reconstruction of France. And so the film is not just documenting four years of occupation, but also the subsequent two decades of obfuscation and not dealing with trauma. Ophuls' method features candid interviews with people of all experiences during the occupation, combined with period newspapers produced by the occupying power and its satellite, like a little satellite, little Vichy. Also, the internal propaganda videos of the Vichy regime. Uh, like Ophuls, we too will attempt to combine period newsreels, that's Western sources interviewing Palestinian activists, and direct interviews from the place. So, we're trying to do some stuff that Marcel is also trying to do. And indeed, one point on which we agree is that no one is all good or bad. The portrayal of the French resistance, those brave men and women, those currently acknowledged heroes of the story, those who fought the Nazi occupiers, risking torture, even death, to liberate their homeland. The portrayal of the French resistance is unequivocally good, and it's hard even now to think otherwise. But how come, according to shifting definitions, we American narratologists don't also call them terrorists? After all, their resistance was not a restrainedly moral or nonviolent one. They manufactured explosives, they assassinated German officers, they derailed trains and distributed subversive press materials. There are a lot of resistance or terrorist fighters in modern history. Like, for example, the proto-Israeli paramilitaries, by which I mean the Jewish groups in Palestine before the creation of the State of Israel, like the Irgun and the Haganah, who similarly bombed, hanged, and generally agitated in a violent manner against the British Empire. Which is not a secret, victors always say that past violence was regretfully necessary to achieve present peace. Unless we learn to act like them, we will never defeat them. We act like them all the time. But do you think the Palestinians invented bloodshed? How do you think we got control of the land? By being nice? That was a clip from the American movie Munich. To counterpose, the following are clips of Palestinian activist Issa Amro, first as filtered through an Australian news production, and second as seen in the Humble Mumbles live recording from Palestine. 34-year-old Issa Amro is a Palestinian activist campaigning against Israeli settlers in Hebron. 
Why? How will you do In the past year, he says Israeli soldiers have arrested him 16 times for disobeying their orders. Okay, okay, call the, you call your commander, call the police. Call them. Call them. No, no, call them. You know, why you to talk to me? I have rights. I have rights, you know. Issa Amro thinks the increase in settlements in the West Bank is the driving anger behind this new uprising. My house is uh, four, five minutes walking from here. Now I need to go around for maybe 30 minutes. Now humble mumbles. Someone comes to attack a soldier with a knife. He's desperate, you know. Someone goes to, to die. Not someone to, who goes to kill a Jewish person. He's not attacking him because he's a Jewish a soldier. You shoot him, kill him. And the soldier, yeah, slightly injured. Control him, you're a soldier, come on. Many times I was almost killed. So. Give me an example. When we were protecting the house here, to three o'clock in the morning, I heard someone walking. And I was, I was with a, a friend who was Israeli. He was sitting with this camera. I didn't want to wake him up. And I hide there. And uh, Ethan Flashman, uh, one of the most fanatic ones here, was coming with his M16 to shoot us. So he reached here, I caught him like this. You grabbed him. Yeah, I just you know, controlled him, and I said Mikhail, and I was almost not able to you know to control him. He's very big, you know. So Mikhail just take the top of the blanket and start filming. You know, he was with the camera. So he, you know, then Flashman gave up directly when he saw the camera, and you know he was shocked that we were ready, and we controlled him till the police came. It was very hard moment. You know, I had a lot of hard time. The Sorrow and the Pity is made up of interviews just like this one, even though they're from a different time and place. France was occupied from 1940 to 1944, and Palestine has been occupied formally since 1967. So what is it about French militants fighting Germans, as opposed to Palestinian militants fighting Israelis, that differently draws our Western media sympathies? These young Palestinians are here to throw stones and Molotov cocktails at Israeli soldiers who are permanently stationed in their town. They've confiscated our land and occupied it. We want the land back. Intifadas are recognized periods of organized resistance with violence alongside numerous non-violent actions by Palestinians and Israelis against occupation. The story in the sorrow and the pity is bound by an arc, an occupation that ended. The situation in Palestine is a bit different. It's the longest extant military occupation to date. These two historical periods are not often thought about together. One is so recent and so charged with different ideas, and the other one is so settled and like is so obviously good, the French resistance. Um, but let's talk about patterns between them. Why did you join the French resistance? Well, the Germans were eating all the food, and it came from our cows in Auvergne, and they imposed curfews, and it was better to fight than to die like slaves. Do you think having been in the resistance, it gave you a bad or good reputation? Bad. When we were active, they called us terrorists, bandits, profiteers. For us, German or Nazi, they were the same. I used to feel that we should distinguish between the German people and the Nazis. 
but after I was taken prisoner, thrashed, and fed by catapult, I'm sorry. But I reacted like any hungry man and considered them one and the same. There were some Germans who weren't Nazis in their hearts, but those Germans were in concentration camps. Ha ha ha, Power behaves the same no matter who's in charge. Victors, conquerors, oppressors tend to talk the same. Wehrmacht captains, Shinbet agents, e.g., former German officers looking back fondly on their time in France as occupiers saying, They treated us well. We were good guests. We want peace. Anything was available on the black market. The authorities are interchangeable. And this speaks to modern feminist ideas about intentionality, that the effect is more important than the intention. You didn't mean to hurt, doesn't matter, or it's less important than if you effectively did hurt. Intent doesn't matter. If we're fucking up with this episode, it's our fault. And I think that this helps explain how the fact of soldier policing, the embodiment or descent into a role like that, eliminates nuance and intention from the perspective of the affected people. The goals, ideals, attempts, intentions of the powerful shouldn't ultimately matter as much as their actions and how their presence is felt. The manifestation of an occupation doesn't match the occupier's stated goals, however lofty. Thus, if the result is oppression, the intention, ideologies, and motivations of the soldiers in the war mechanism are less important, be they freedom or security. For example, Settler groups openly state they want a Jewish majority in the Palestinian east of the city, and they've been moving in in the hundreds. Israeli settlers won a court case to evict 30-year-old Yasser and his family two days ago from this house. They claimed Jews owned this building and used it as a synagogue in the 1930s. I've lived here my whole life, even after I got married. This is the only place I've lived. So what do you expect these people to do? This is the situation. There is no future. A Palestinian family is evicted in the present because of a Jewish family's dream of the past. Essentially saying, my fantasy of family, tribe, and lineage is more important than your reality. And this idea of intention not mattering, this feminist idea, Hopefully this is a defense for our pods comparing German and Israeli soldiers, which sounds horrible, uh, but their technical ideology, which is very different, matters less than their physical actions. They had different motivations, but to the people most affected, they end up looking similar. And we're not just trying to make this a narrow, ugly, biased comparison between Germans and Israelis. When we talk about specifically German soldiers in 1942, we could fill in British soldiers in Palestine in the same period or the contemporary American police. We're not just comparing Israelis and Germans, we're comparing all of these powerful people to each other. And to ourselves. Because the everyday power, differentials, and fear, danger situations crunch these different periods together and make them resemble each other. Right after World War II, after the Germans had occupied France, French, British, and American soldiers were occupying Germany. Plus, Algeria is a great literal example of power behaving the same regardless of who wields it. The occupied French state of 1940-1944 was the occupier before, after, and during World War II in Algeria, in Vietnam, in West Africa. You can see a great example of the French's occupying power in another 1960s movie, The Battle of Algiers. So, 
No one is anything all the time. We Jews are great examples, powerless in much of Europe pre-20th century, powerful in Israel 1948 to present. And so what we're proposing is that while the French people quoted in The Sorrow and the Pity are talking very specifically about their experiences, those experiences can be translated to be relevant to other occupations. And so could this speech from activist Sahar Francis, a Palestinian activist and the director of the Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association at Amir. She's talking very specifically here, but she could be talking about the illogic of any overlord over power. In the military court system, they impose uh, fines with the like seven years or five years, and every year they collect like 14 million shekels from the Palestinian prisoners. Once Amira has referred the question to the military system, what you do with this money? And the, the answer was that we use it in the infrastructure in the occupied territories. It's very ridiculous, exactly. It was very shocking, like which infrastructure, definitely not in Ramallah, not in, maybe in the settlements and in the bypass roads and the checkpoints that you uh, impose, but definitely not for the benefit of the uh, civil society, of the people and their occupation. You know, this is the way how Israel were manipulating this business since 67 till today. They take the international law. From one side, they claim that the Fourth Geneva Convention is not applicable. In the same time, they dig in these rules, and wherever there's a rule that is benefiting their interest, they rely on it and they use it. They prosecute every year more than 3,000 Palestinian prisoners, collecting this huge amount of money from the families and from the uh, Palestinian Authority and use it definitely for the settlements and the checkpoints in the occupied territories. This isn't an exact parallel to the French occupation, but it's an example of the twisted logic of occupation itself and of fascism, where the laws and practices baldly exist to serve certain ends. And even the pretense of fairness is absent. In our society, the laws pretend to be fair, but everyone knows they're applied selectively and unfairly. In a fascist society, the laws don't even pretend to be fair. Actually, in the last two years, they confirmed as well increasing the sentence in Jerusalem and the civil system for throwing stones from 10 years to be 20 years and from one year to be five years. And we were wondering if they would use the same against the settlers because last week settlers in Beit Ale were attacking the soldiers and we didn't hear about arrest of settlers and that they are prosecuting them and how much the sentences would be if they would use the same uh, 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 procedures and sentences that they use against Palestinians or not. Some people who throw stones at the army get 20 years for being terrorists, and some people are the right people and don't get punished. Consider the differences between black children carrying fake guns in Ohio and white men carrying real guns in Oregon. And a psychological note, we've been discussing patterns between occupiers. The Sire on the Pity was released in 1969, but was banned from being shown on French television until 1981. We noted that the documentary largely focuses on collaboration between French and Germans, which complicates and muddles the nationalist victorious French narrative, the brave men and women storyline. 
not that there weren't bravery, freedom, etc., but that there is also moral duality and human complications. Nothing is pure. There is no such thing as a trademark hero. This film was censored for so long because of fear of strict responsibility, embarrassment, and guilt. Noting patterns in complicity is scary because in doing so we implicate ourselves as part of a problem in a story that's ongoing, that's cyclical, that looks one way in the 40s and another way now. It's scary because we have to admit that we're not just the protagonists or narrators outside of the story. We're inside, and we might be on the winning team. So, psychologically, we're always protecting ourselves from ourselves. We don't want to know our own badness. Why do we call Palestinians bad terrorists and French good resistance fighters? Why was a movie about French heroes, but also French collaborators, banned for so many years in its home country? And why do we call Germans occupying France bad? and Israelis occupying Gaza on the West Bank good, or neutral, or a non-issue. It's a measure of how difficult this process is, confronting traumas and responsibility, that the film didn't come out until decades after the war, and yet it was attacked and censored for even a decade following. Another aside. There's actually an exhibit right now in Philadelphia called The Incidental Insurgents by two Palestinian artists, Basil Abbas and Ruan Abu Ram. The exhibit is made up of a bunch of stuff, texts, visuals. An article in the New Inquiry, which you can find in the Bandcamp body of this episode, has this to say about it. In our workshop, Basil cited the identical feelings between revolutionaries in Paris in 1910 and in Palestine in 2011. Is this the new archive, one that feels? The incidental insurgents is an archive whose materials swirl around a nucleus. Not an event, a nation, a religion, or a language, but a strategy of resistance. And this brings us from patterns of occupations to the different ways small factions fighting big armies are valorized positively as resistance or negatively as terrorism. What is resistance? If any martial group doesn't have enough power or permission to be an army, how do they resist? Limited options require more creativity. The French resistance weren't an army, but they were fighting one. They needed psychological weapons to replace real ones. So they resorted to creating a culture of fear for Germans. Terrorists, anarchists, resistance, American Minutemen, anybody, they're actually anticipating the crackdown that follows an attack because they believe that that crackdown will lead to more resistance by the people, which will lead to more atrocities by the powerful, which will lead to more people taking up arms, realizing the situation is so dire that they have to fight, they have to resist, and eventually the many will overcome the powerful few. You could call them terrorists, but terrorism is just a tactic. Like, what is terrorism? It's not an ideology. You might remember this point being made over and over by exhausted editorialists during the War on Terror. You could call it terrorism or freedom fighting or guerrilla warfare or Minutemen. It's the same. National insurrection goes hand-in-hand hand with liberation. It was one twisted phrase of de Gaulle's that was used by the resistance. He's talking specifically, and we're using it generally. Again, let's note patterns. None of this is unique or particular to any group or nation. Nothing is inconceivable. Many groups have been in many different roles. Victors, victims, aggressors, occupiers, occupied. We mentioned the French as occupiers in Algeria, but occupied by the Germans, Jews as primarily powerless throughout history until Israel catapulted us up into utter power. They were hateful people. A French Jew in this movie said about the Vichy government, 
The same could be said about Israelis. Same story, different people. The cycle continues even as the people change. The elements infusing them create them. Have I said context creates character in this episode yet? Not yet. I just did. Now you did. One reason I'm fascinated with patterns is that they're escapable, but only if you can see them. The goal of psychoanalysis, for example, is to make people aware of their individual patterns, the traps that entrap us cyclically, and the unconscious uses thereof, e.g. being in the same kinds of abusive relationships or having nervous tics. All these taken-for-granted things and behaviors we ignore and think of as normal have histories and causes, sometimes going back generations, staying in place because no one talks about it. The talking cure, as Freud called it, exists to break spells and reveal alternatives to imagined, faded, predestined traps. And cycles also operate on a social or collective level. Take, for example, the origins of World War II, the lust for revenge. I'm thinking about how the Germans wanted revenge on the French for World War I, when in World War I, the French wanted revenge on the Germans for the Franco-Prussian War from 1870. I don't like defeat, especially when it's 60 to zero, said one of the French resistance guys in the sorrow and the pity. It could be a third intifada. This is what the people believe. We are calling for an escalation, God willing, in order to end the Israeli occupation of our land to liberate Palestine. Another pattern, escalation. The powerful group or occupiers inevitably resort to worse and worse or more violent, less moral tactics to combat the terrorists or resistance fighters, thus undermining their own stated moral high ground and their domestic support. This descent into violence, torture, and muck is another implicit goal of the asymmetrical resistance. I was alone many times. I was beaten. 2008, I was beaten till I fainted. Settlers were climbing to the soldiers who were beating me up. Everybody's happy. I was working with Bethlehem that time. And I was filming a settler's riot. And one of the settler girls came toward me and grabbed the camera. But she didn't manage. I'm always, you know, I know what to do. So I grabbed it back. In that time, five soldiers jumped to me. It's amazing how the powerful are always unprepared. We came as liberators. Why do they hate us? You know, it's like they had nothing. You know, we brought our... The candies. We brought our candies. They hate our freedom. Why are they shooting us? They're inherently violent. They could have a Palestinian state if only they went back to the negotiating table and talked with Israel instead of using violence. 